Welcome to the John Mark Comer Teachings Podcast by Practicing the Way. This teaching was first given at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon as a part of the community practice. The journalist Sebastian Younger in his book, Tribe, tells the story of an odd phenomenon in early American history. In the 18th century, up and down the eastern seaboard, you had two groups of people living side by side. You had the indigenous people living the way they did 15,000 years ago in the Stone Age, really no different. And then you had the colonists, white, for the most part British, who were living at the apex of Western civilization. And a number of colonists began to defect to go and live among the indigenous people. But the odd thing was, and here's the phenomenon, the traffic only went one way. We have no records, and it could be a thing, but we have no records of indigenous people of their own free will coming to live with the colonists. Benjamin Franklin, in a letter to a friend in 1753, said of colonists who were captured in a raid and then were later saved and brought back to the colony, quote, though ransomed by their friends and treated with all imaginable tenderness to prevail with them to stay among the English, yet in a short time they become disgusted with our manner of life and take the first good opportunity of escaping again into the woods. Or take a look at this from the French emigre Hector Crevacaire in a book from 1782. And his language here is not PC, but it's hundreds of years old. Thousands of Europeans are Indians, and we have no examples of even one of those aborigines having from choice become European. And then listen to his interpretation. There must be in their social bond something singularly captivating and far superior to anything to be boasted of among us. And Younger just makes the point that early on in American history, the seeds of what we now call radical individualism were planted and began to poison the soul of America and the West as a whole, but in particular our country. De Tocqueville, after his tour through America in 1831, named, quote, extremist individualism as the defining American trait and said that if left unchecked, it would spell the, quote, abolition of humanity. But for many years, this individualistic impulse in the West was essentially kept in check up until about World War II. In fact, the war really brought the West as a whole together. There's a famous study done by a Canadian psychologist on the London Blitz in 1940 and 41 that found this bizarre thing where the rates of depression in the city of London went down during the Nazi bombardment and after it was all over, went back up, so to speak, to normal levels, which is just bizarre. And his interpretation, and it's since been redone by a number of researchers, and there's some speculation, but that it's not that humans have an odd love of Nazi, Nazi bombardment. It was the sense of community, the way that it brought all of London together. I mean, cities are notorious for loneliness because you live and you're surrounded by tens of thousands, or in London's case, millions of people, but most of them are strangers. Cities are transient, they're multicultural, you don't have a solid identity or ethnic identity to live into, you have very few long-term, in-depth relationships, and so, so many people in a city feel lonely, but something about the Blitz brought the city of London and the war brought 
brought the West as a whole together. But since then, individualism has essentially been running wild, and there has been a rapid decline in community. We think, of course, about the church. Church attendance, for example, has been cut in half since the 1950s. And it's easy to just read that as a statement about secularism and the decline of the church. But what that misses is that it's not just church attendance. Robert Putnam from Harvard University and his seminal work on this called Bowling Alone, it's a little bit old now, but it's still the kind of go-to resource, makes the point that it's not just church attendance that's in decline, it's any and all forms of community in particular that require any kind of commitment. So hence his name, Bowling Alone. Like how many of you are in a bowling league, on a bowling team? You're like, anybody? Yeah, not one of you in the whole room, 800 people in the room, none of you are like, I have a high level of commitment to my bowling team or whatever. But that used to be a thing that was very normal. But it's all down, not just church attendance, but the bowling league, the Elks Log, the country club, all of it. Since the 1960s, the seeds that were planted in the Enlightenment have come to full flower. And what used to be on the margin with an elite philosopher like John Stuart Mill or whoever is now right at the center of our society. And the early results are, frankly, not all that good. Last year, Theresa May made news when she appointed a loneliness minister in the UK based on a study in which 9 million Brits, nearly 20% of the population, were identified as lonely. In her statement to the press, she said, quote, for far too many people, loneliness is the sad reality of modern life. But this is not just a British problem. In the US, rates of loneliness are actually much higher. They have doubled since the 1980s. 35% of Americans report they are chronically lonely. Only 8% report having a conversation with a neighbor over the previous year. In 1984, the average American had three confidants. A recent report said that 25% have zero. In a famous interview, our former Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy, in his article for the Harvard Business Review, wrote, quote, during my years caring for patients, the most common pathology I saw was not heart disease or diabetes, it was loneliness. In an interview with Thomas Friedman in the New York Times, he called it the great pathology of our lives today. On a similar note, George Gallup of Gallup Poll fame said, quote, Americans are among the loneliest people in the world. And with loneliness comes a wide range of health problems. One study found that it's worse than smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It has a greater impact on your lifespan than obesity. Multiple studies have tied it to heart disease, dementia, and very much to anxiety and depression. But health of mind and body aside, the health of our society is at risk. Ironically, individualism leads to loneliness, and this is a little bit over my pay grade, and people much smarter than me argue for this, but loneliness in an odd way leads to tribalism. David Brooks calls tribalism the, quote, dark twin of community. Community is based on mutual love. Tribalism is based on mutual hate. Community is about who and what we are for. Tribalism is about what we are against. Community is about generosity and honor and celebration of the other and how different we are. Tribalism is a zero-sum battle for scarce resources where it is kill or be killed. If God, quote, sets the solitary in families, then individualism sets the lonely in tribes. 
One author writes, quote, the tragic paradox of hyper-individualism is that what began as an ecstatic liberation ends up as a war of tribe against tribe that crushes the individuals it sought to free. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to church. So happy you're here. All that to say, is there a practice from the life and teachings of Jesus of Nazareth that has the potential to set us up for a whole new way of life where we flourish and thrive in a rich, dense web of relationships inside a host culture that is marked by decline into individualism and loneliness and tribalism? And the answer is, that's a leading question. Of course, the answer is yes. Take a look with me at Matthew chapter 4. Let's just stroll through a story or three or four from the life of Jesus. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was also called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, or that can be translated, come, apprentice under me. And I will send you out to fish for people, or some of your translations have, I will make you into fishers of people. Now, don't read that as like a play on words and a really cheesy joke from Jesus. He's much more intelligent and sophisticated than that. Fishers of people was a first century idiom for a great rabbi or a great teacher who would capture the mind and the imagination of the hearer. Jesus is basically saying, hey, follow me, apprentice under me, and I will make you like me. I will make you into a brilliant, wise sage to capture the heart of your generation, which is why 20 at once, they left their nets, dropped everything, walk away from a career right there, and followed him. Now, going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother, John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, too, and immediately, right then and there, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Very early on in the story, you pick up that to follow Jesus is to live in community. Jesus did not call one disciple, singular, but disciples, plural, and Jesus continues, as the story goes on, to call people to join his little community, but it is a very high bar of entry. Turn the page to chapter 8. Take a look with me at verse 18. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law, so it's a very prestigious career in that time, came to him and he said, Rabbi, I will follow you wherever you go. I'm ready to give up everything and just leave it all behind and go after you. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus is definitely not a salesman at all. And this is gracious, but it's very, it's, it's, it's very honest. See, and are you sure? Do you realize the price you're about to pay? Do you realize what it will cost you to come after me? But then contrary to that, 21, another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And that's not literal. That's a figure of speech. What that means is let me go back home and wait for my father to die and the family inheritance of land to pass down to me. Otherwise, if I abandon the family right now, which is a taboo in the first century kind of Jewish family-based culture, more on that next week, um, then the inheritance, I will miss out on this inheritance, which is why Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. And I love that the story does not tell you what happens 
Like, because the invitation is for you to identify with this anonymous man or woman or whatever and say, man, where am I in the invitation of Jesus? But my point for now is just that you realize that some people were ready and willing to give up everything to follow after Jesus in his new little community, but for other people, it was just too high a bar of entry. Here's another story, Matthew chapter 9, next page, verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew, again, same thing, chance of a lifetime, got up and followed him then and there. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him. Because if you're a tax collector or a sinner, who are you friends with? Other tax collectors and other sinners, right? Hence, Matthew's little crew of friends. And there's them and then his apprentices, Jesus. Now, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his apprentices, why does your rabbi eat with tax collectors and sinners? That was a major social taboo. On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. How good is that line? But go and learn what this means. And this is a quote from the prophet Hosea. I desire compassion, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So interesting, Matthew tells us that there are people in Jesus' community from across the spectrum of maturity. You have good Torah-observant Jewish boys like James and John and Peter and Andrew, and then you have a tax collector in there. You have Judas Iscariot that we're about to read about. Apparently, Jesus, and if I'm reading this right, is a little bit more interested in the level of commitment than he is in the level of maturity. Take a look at this, chapter 10, verse 1, next page. Jesus called his 12 apprentices to him, and he gave them, notice, not gave Peter, but gave them as a community authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and illness. These are the name of the 12 apostles, so kind of the nucleus of a much larger community of people. First, Simon, who's also called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, read about those guys, but then also Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, that is an odd mishmash of a group from across the cultural topography of first century Israel. I don't have time to parse it all out for you. Let's just take a look at the two that Matthew has a moniker next to, Matthew the tax collector and Simon the Zealot. Now, the Zealots, of which Simon was a part, were a right-wing Jewish insurgency group that would conduct violent, guerrilla-like terrorist activity on unsuspecting Roman soldiers in a quest for Israeli independence, right? So you have Simon the Zealot, then you have Matthew, who was literally on the payroll of Rome. Use your imagination. Can you imagine what morning coffee would feel like? Good morning, traitor. Hello, murderer, whatever. I mean, let's just say, this is a cheesy analogy, but let's just say I'm a famous rabbi and I just decide to pull together a group of 12 up-and-coming leaders that I really believe in to come live with me for three years in a co-housing community and let me just mentor, invest everything I have, and that like, it would take me a week or two, but, and then I'm out. But, but imagine, hypothetical scenario, three years, give everything I have to this new community that will go on to change the world. And let's say first person I call is, 
I don't know, Ben Shapiro. You know, of just YouTube fame, smart as a whip, and just mean and nasty, right? And then I think, all right, who should I invite next? I know. How about the AOC? Come on. How about a little Alexandria? She was in the news this morning. President Trump was not nice to her at all, right? Can you imagine what conversation around the dinner table would be like? Right? I mean, seriously. And as cheesy as that is, no joke, no exaggeration, multiply that by at least a factor of 10. And you're dealing with the level of tension, hostility, bitterness, acrimony between a tax collector and a zealot. That, by the way, is one polarity. There are many more in the 12 alone. So as you would expect, the 12 get into it. One last story, chapter 20. And let me give you an example, Matthew chapter 20. Take a look at verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, that's James and John, came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, so she's just milking it, right, asked a favor of him. And Jesus is so gracious. What is it that you want? She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Now, we don't know what exactly she's thinking, but most likely, in her mind's eye, Jesus is the Messiah, which means he's about to muster an army, beat back the Roman Empire, establish Israel as a nation state once again, rule and reign as king from Jerusalem. And she's basically saying, would you make one of my boys, you know, your vice president and the other your secretary of state or something like that? Now, again, Jesus, so gracious. You don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Cup is a metaphor in Jesus' mind for suffering, for Jesus' leadership in the kingdom of God as a form of suffering love. Uh, we can, they answered. Notice James and John now pipe in. We can, we're ready, we're right there. Jesus said to them, oh man, you will indeed drink from my cup. Both of them were killed for faith in Jesus. But to sit at my right or my left, it's not even for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. Notice Jesus is just the, the level of just submission and surrender. Now, when the 10 heard about this, okay, so right now we realize that this was all out of earshot of the 10. So there was a scheme here between like the two brothers and mommy to like get Jesus away out of earshot. When the 10 heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Indignant is Bible for a word I can't say from stage. They were very mad, right? Can you imagine if you're Peter, you're like, not only did you go behind my back, James and John, but you got your mom to ask. You don't even have the courage to ask yourself. You're got your mom to do it for you. Jesus called them together and he said, oh, just imagine a sigh in his mind. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Classic. I mean, Foucault would love this, right? You know that outside of our community, everything's about power dynamics. It's about, you know, might makes right, strong and the weak. It's all about who has, it's all about power and oppression and all of that. 26, not so with you. That's not how we do things in our community. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must stand up for your rights. No, he doesn't say that must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Meaning to live in this new community under the rule of God 
is to live by a whole other set of relational dynamics than the world. It's to live not with power, but with love as the center point. Now, Jesus does not use the word love in the text, but that is very much the idea. His community is where his apprentices um, train, for lack of a better word, to become like him, a self-sacrificial servant who is pervaded by love at the deepest level. So let's just take a quick step back and just a few very simple observations from the life and teachings of Jesus on community. First, Jesus lived in community. Just let that sink in for a moment. He was not a sage up on a mountain with a white beard all alone. He basically lived in a mobile co-housing community. And the call to follow him was, listen, at the same time, a simultaneous call to join his community. Apparently, we can't follow Jesus alone. Secondly, notice that lots of people turn down Jesus' invitation with no, no guilt or shame from Jesus, no judgment, but for a lot of people, it was just too high a price. But those who said yes, who gave up everything to follow after Jesus, notice, one, we're at different stages of maturity. Imagine what that would be like. We're from across the socio-political spectrum, and as you would imagine, three got into regular conflict. Finally, the end goal of Jesus' community was to grow and mature his apprentices into people who were like him, who were pervaded by a heart of love and service. Now, this vision of life together in the kingdom of Jesus is very different from what many of us think of when we hear the word community. I think there's a few mistakes that we make, at least I make. One is we mistake connectivity for community. Cue my ongoing rant, forgive me, on how online community is an oxymoron. We all know that we're more connected than ever before with digital technology, thanks to text messaging and FaceTime and WhatsApp and email and social media, not to mention the airplane or the automobile, and all of that is, I'm grateful for it. But yet still, notice that loneliness is on the rise. In fact, it's through the roof. In fact, in study after study, there is a direct correlation between social media and internet use and loneliness. The more you use digital technology, the more lonely you are likely to be. And there are different theories, but most researchers theorize it's because we spend more time liking the photo of somebody we met a year ago on a road trip to San Diego than we do in face-to-face -face conversation with a close friend. Sherry Turkle from MIT in her 2015 book, Reclaiming Conversation, and she's done some of the best work. If you're not familiar with her material, it's very good. She draws a hard line of distinction between connection and conversation. She writes, quote, face-to-face -face conversation is the most human and humanizing thing we do. Fully present to one another, we learn to listen it's where we develop the capacity for empathy. Think about how different we speak to each other in pers person to person than we do online or on social media or to a celebrity or politician or whatever. It's where we experience the joy of being heard and being understood. She goes on to argue that we're just not made to keep in touch with so many people. And study after study of brain scans, neuroplasticity, of hunter-gatherer tribes, of military theory, 100 to 150 is the max number of people we are capable of relationship with. And yet, for most of us, via technology, we are connected to many more than that. As a result, connectivity is way up, but still community is actually way down. 
Secondly, we mistake chemistry for community. What I mean by chemistry is that neurobiological spark or kickback we get when we have an instant connection with somebody who is like us. And a lot of people write that off as narcissism, and I'm sure that's some of that, but I don't think so. I mean, C.S. Lewis said that the root of all friendship is you too. And I love, I love that. I remember when I first met um, Dave Lomas, who's one of my dearest friends. It was a number of years ago. He's from uh, San Francisco. And we were at this random pastor's gathering. It was really small, about 10 of us in the room. It was assigned seating. And we sat down at this table. We did not know each other from Adam. And I took one look at him, and I thought, wow, you, like, you're dressed really cool, kind of like me, you know? Like, <laughs> kind of cool, but not cool. Not like you're trying too hard because you are nearing 40, but like you pay attention, but not too much attention. It's like, it's cool. And I, I, like, I like you. And, and then he's like, hey. I'm like, hey. And then I, <laughs> I, I set down my, my bag, which is by my brother-in-law, who's a designer, Stephen Ken. And he said, oh, nice bag. And he set down his Stephen Ken bag next to mine. I thought, oh. And then I pulled out my, my Allen Bible, best Bible in the world, handmade in Scotland. And I set it down. And he said, nice Bible. And he pulled out the exact same one <laughs> and said on the day. And then it was just a whole day of that, like, you, you too? You, you like the second Local Natives record better than the first one? Oh my gosh, me too. It was like a whole day of just that. And, you know, to this day, I mean, every Friday afternoon, we have a standing phone appointment just to connect and bear our soul with each other, and we vacation together, and we spend a week together in prayer at a pastor's retreat every spring, and we sacrifice time and money to go visit each other. But as much as I love my friend to death, I am actually quite careful to classify him as a friend and not as a member of my community, just because he lives 600 miles away. We don't do life together. We see each other, what, half a dozen times a year? Not in the day in, day out, when I'm tired, when I said yes to too many things, when I'm grumpy with my children, when whatever it is, is on the docket. Then I think of Penny, on the other hand. She's not here tonight. She was here this morning. Penny is, I don't know, about 70 years old in my Bridgetown community, just a wonderful soul. But, you know, I doubt that if I were to walk into a room, Penny, the 70-year-old woman over there, uh, like, and I would gravitate toward each other, just the natural chemistry, you know what I mean? I don't think she has any idea who Local Natives even is, much less has a preference for one record over the other. But she is in my community. We see each other on a regular basis. She's in my home. She's aware of the marital dynamics and family dynamics. She's aware of my spending habits, of how I do life day to day. My point is just this. We can have community with people that we have very little chemistry with, and we can have chemistry with people that we have very little community with. Now, of course, the both together, that's like the dream. That's like the best of both worlds. My point for now is just that while they overlap, they are not synonymous. So then, if community in the way of Jesus isn't connectivity or even chemistry, what is it exactly? Well, in Greek, the word is koinonia. Can you say that? Koinonia can be translated community or fellowship, if you have an ESV or an older translation of the Bible, or partnership is another translation, or sharing, or common, or to have in common. I love the English translation of community. Merriam-Webster defines community as people with common interests living in a particular area. 
I love that. So right now, that rules out online community or something like that. It's people that you live by. Community, by definition, is people that you live near or are around on a regular basis. But it's this idea of common interest. The root word from Latin is communitas, which literally means people that you have something in common with. That's why, God bless you. Um, that's why CrossFit, for example, is a legitimate form of community. It's also a cult, but um, <laughs> it, it, they do community really well. That's, seriously, it's a whole thing there. It's why a local school is a legitimate form of community. It's why, as odd as it is, like a dog park is, because dogs, it's not only a community, dogs are a religion in our city. It is a temple of worship and um, of the little dog god thing. And uh, it is a legitimate, it's, it's just people that you live by and you have something in common. Somebody was just telling me the other day about the drifting community in Portland. And I was like, wait, wait, the, what? I don't even know what that is. What's the drifting community? Apparently, it's a whole group of people who what their thing is is drifting, which apparently is the name for when you go like all fast and furious in your car and you, it, you drift. I would say you just do slide or you drive bad or something, but you drift. <laughs> and apparently, like, you have to modify your car now to make it drift. There's a whole community. I had no idea. There's an underground community in our city. What they do is they get together on the weekend and they drift. I don't, I just think it sounds so punk rock. I don't even know where they do it. It's like, the Walmart parking lot, or is it out in a field in Gresham? I have no idea. But there's a community of drifters in the city. But that's just people who live here, and that's what they have in common. Now, for us in the way of Jesus, what is community? Well, it's people that we live by, and, and what do we have in common? Well, for us, it's not anything other than Jesus. It's not our political persuasion. It's not our ethnicity, it's not our cultural preference, it's not where we fall in the tax bracket or educational background. The one common denominator with every single one of you here in the room tonight is Jesus of Nazareth. So community is a very simple idea. It's, it's hard work, but it's not complex. It's people that you live by and you follow Jesus with. And community is right at the center of what Jesus is on about in the world. Some scholars, such as Scott McKnight, go so far as to argue that the kingdom of God and the community of Jesus are basically the same thing. In fact, you can make a strong case that of all the practices of Jesus, the two most important are silence and solitude and community because they are the two containers that hold all of the others. As a general rule, our best moments of healing and freedom and breakthrough and experience or encounter with Jesus are either when we are alone with him in the quiet or when we are together in community, around a table with the bread and the wine or here together at church or in an in-depth conversation with a close friend. If you read the four New Testament biographies of Jesus, you pick up really fast that Jesus would oscillate back and forth between silence and solitude and community. He would retreat away into the Eremos or the quiet place, and then he would sneak back right into community. There was a rhythm, a dance, a back and forth of the two. But for many of us, our rhythm looks a little bit more like this, right? We're scared to go all the way into silence and solitude. Like, what, what actually would happen if we're there and there's no cultural narcotic, there's no noise, there's no headphones with local natives in my ears or whatever? I can't tell you how many people tell me they do their silence and solitude at Heart Coffee. Like, you know, that, I have a very wide, elastic view of silence and solitude, but that, that's a bit of a stretch for me. It's not exactly the wilderness, you know? 
But man, and I say that not to slam anybody, we're scared to actually go into the quiet where there's nothing there to distract us, nothing there to make us feel better, just our soul laid bare before God and the universe. And we're often scared to go all the way into community. Friends, great, hang out. We invented hanging out in Portland, right? We're for all of that. But to actually go all the way to that place of vulnerability and openness where you're naked and unashamed, that is a metaphor, by the way. I need to say that in this city. (laughs) We're scared to go all the way into that. And so many of us instead hover in this middle ground of what M. Scott Peck called pseudo-community. Come to church, we have Christian friends, maybe we're even in a Bridgetown community, maybe we even show up every single week, but we hold back a core part of who we really are. Now, there are all sorts of reasons for this. In my experience as a pastor, and this is just based on antidotal evidence, I have no data for this, but here are the top three. One is individualism. David Brooks writes, we live in a culture of hyper-individualism. There is always a tension between self and society or the individual and the group. But over the past 60 years, we have swung too far toward the self. The only way out is to rebalance, to build a culture that steers people toward relation, community, and commitment. The things we most deeply yearn for yet undermine with our hyper-individualistic way of life. The key word here is commitment, and that really is the rub. To live in community, we have to commit. Okay, now right there, that's like deal breaker for a lot of us, right? Because to show up every Tuesday night means, well, what if something else better comes along? And trust me, it will, right? That, and then the, the, the FOMO of all of that, the fear of missing out, the choice anxiety, the what about this, the I want to keep my options open. But it's much deeper than that. It's to commit to a community. It's to live under authority in our hyper-egalitarian, hyper-anti-authoritarian society. And it's not to come under the authority of a you know, totalitarian dictator, but it is to come under the authority of a way, of Jesus of Nazareth as Lord, as the king of the kingdom, of his teachings as written down in the New Testament. We as a church, we, to live in community, we come under the authority of Jesus and the New Testament to do. That is our charter for life together, and it is more and more and more over against that of the culture of our city. We have to give up our autonomy. My point is just to live in community, you can't just do whatever you want whenever you want. You have to give up some of that in love. And this, of course, just goes against so much of our modern sensibility. Another block to community is idealism. The classic book on community that we have in our recommended reading out there, even though it's a bit dated, it's still just excellent, is Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Written in 1938, during his experience of living together in a co-housing community, basically, of 150 people at Finkenwald, the clandestine seminary that he set up to fight the Nazi corruption of the Lutheran Church. It was later closed down with the Gestapo. He was arrested and put to death by Nazi Germany. But I reread it this week. It's not very long. And again, I was, every time I read it, I'm struck by the exact same paragraph. Let me just read this over you. He writes, the sooner this shock of disillusionment, meaning the sooner like you are arrested with the reality that community in the way of Jesus is not awesome. It's like hard work, and it's not ideal, and it's messy, and people do stupid things. The sooner that this shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better for both. 
Every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves the dream of community more than the community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. Even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial, the man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God and himself accordingly. He said we come in with a heart posture of demand rather than one of grateful reception. My wife and I um, are reading right now, or rereading The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller, which, just side note, every single human being on the planet should read. Single, in a marriage, like, doesn't matter. Just Christian, atheist, read this. And um, it's, seriously, it's that good. And we're rereading it, and just, I'm so struck. The biblical theology of marriage is 128 degrees from that of our culture, and I just, we get sucked into all the political stuff, and I just forget, oh, wow, this is a, a radically different and disparate vision of what marriage is all about. And I'm so struck by the danger, the violence, and the harm done to marriage by romanticism and idealism. The main reason that most marriages fail is because of wildly unrealistic expectations. And most of us, Carol, how long have you been married? 48 years. Enough said. But many of us make that exact same mistake with community, particularly community in the way of Jesus, because as you would imagine, we have really high expectations. We have higher expectations for community in the way of Jesus than community in the way of Intel, you know, or Wyden and Kennedy, or CrossFit, or Heart Coffee, or whatever. And um, as with marriage, people who are idealistic about community tend to either wait around for the perfect fit, the soulmate, which is right out there with your unicorn, or <laughs> um, that's a whole other teaching I don't have time for. Um, come back another time. Either they, they wait around and it never comes because it's a myth. Or they bounce from one community to the next to the next, one relationship to the next to the next, from one church to the next to the next, in search of the ideal, which is a myth. It is not a reality. This is so caustic. This is so, this is vitriol to the health. In particular, if you are like me, um, idealistic by nature, I cannot tell you, and some of you have been around the church for a long time, you, you know the damage that has been done to our own community through my idealism. Ah, oh, it's, and it's, and it's a, just a, it is a, it is a deep limp, particularly if you have a visionary mind or you're a perfectionist or you're an idealist or you're just an optimist for the future. It's so easy to destroy the reality of what is in the name of an idealistic vision. The third reason, though, which I really think is actually the main block for most of us, is intimidation. We're scared of it. At the root, that's really like under everything, fear. And I don't just mean those of us who are introverts and have some social anxiety. Anybody else? Am I the only one? Introversion and extroversion 
have nothing to do with how relational somebody is. It's about how social somebody is. People will regularly say to me, oh, you're introverted. Does that mean you just hate people? <laughs> to which I, I think, no, just you. Um, <laughs> I don't say that. I think it really, and then I immediately repent in my heart, all right? Um, but people say that to me all the time. Do you just hate people or whatever? Oh, I'm sorry, I'm a person and I'm with you or whatever. I'm like, no, it's not even about that at all. It's about, it's not even like, that's not even the union framework. It's about where your energy comes from, blah, 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 Google it. But some of the most relational people I know who live over decades in a rich web of relationships are very introverted. And some of the most lonely, superficial, transient, non-committal people I know are off the charts extroverts who make friends everywhere they go. It's not a slam on extroverts at all, any more than it's vindication for introverts, us persecuted minority. But um, I mean, it kind of was a little bit, but not really, not, not in my better heart, right? Um, it's just to say that it's nothing to do. Both introverts and extroverts, we're all scared. We're all scared that we I think we realize that some gut intuitive level, even if we've never been hurt by the church or community or none of that, even if we don't have any of that in our story, still, we realize that what silence and solitude and community have in common is that in both spaces, our real self is laid bare. Yes. It's just exposed. There's nowhere to hide who we actually are and who we actually aren't. It just comes out with no filter, for better or for worse, before God in silence and solitude and before the community of God in our community. And in fact, in a strange conspiracy of grace that I think is at the heart of the mystery of the gospel, we are at not only our best, but we are also at our worst with the people that we love the most. If you were to put a hidden camera on my jacket or whatever when I go home tonight and follow me around and watch me, which is illegal, by the way, so please don't. But, <laughs> but if you were to watch me for the next week, 24-7, the worst moments, the moments when your jaw would drop and you would say, scandal, oh my gosh, I can't, would all be pretty much things that I say. Most of the sins at this point in my maturity with Jesus are sins of my mouth. And they would pretty much all be directed at my lovely wife, T, or my three children maybe a super close friend or a super close coworker, but pretty much my wife and family. The people that I love the most. Why? Because I'm safe with them. And it's not that I'm my worst self with them, it's that I'm my real self with them. Who I actually am comes out. Last night was um, family night, and so uh, I was just an amazing dad, and I said, hey kids, how about for dinner tonight, we go get ice cream? So we went and had Evan Bean vegan ice cream for dinner, which was fantastic. And then we came back home, and because I'm kind of anti-TV, I said, no movie tonight. Normally, Saturday night's family movie night. Let's play games. I detest games. Terrible idea. So we sit down, and we play this game that my 13-year-old turned me onto called Super Fight. Anybody play that? It's like an imagination card game. Anybody play Super Fight? Anybody know it? No, you don't know about it? It's horrible. Don't ever play it. <laughs> so we start to play... And you do like an uh, imagination battle, you get a card, and it's like really wacky. And so I get into a, a super fight with my wife, which then turns into a super fight because she changes the rules. 
Don't you hate those people that change the rules? We're fighting in New York City, and all of a sudden she moves to Alaska because she has a polar bear that turns into any vehicle that has sonic boom blast, right? And, I, and I'm like, that's not fair. I'm men in black who has wall climbing ability and a rocket launcher. And so we're having this battle, and I just beat Moses, who was a three-story tall velociraptor, and I beat him in New York City, and now we're in Alaska. It's not fair. And we literally get into this fight. At, I'm, and, I, and my wife is thinking, we're playing this game for our children, and you're <laughs> fighting me. But like it was integrity was on the line, my friends, right? So we go to bed last night, and I'm, my last conversation is literally like a, a very tense conversation with my wife over the ethics of rules in this game. <laughs> we have the manual out, and I'm reading, and she's reading, and then it goes to like deep stuff from early in our marriage, and how like <laughs> it just goes really deep, really fast. So my point is, I woke up this morning. I would love to say, like, this is Saturday night. This is like, this is how I prepare my family to worship Jesus. <laughs> I woke up this morning, I would love to say that I just woke up in this like Jesus version of Zen and I just began to levitate a little bit off the bed by the Holy Spirit and then just here I am. But the reality is I woke up this morning and as soon as my family was awake, I had to go out and repent. I had to say I'm so sorry. I just literally like wrecked a beautiful little family night, which was my idea, so I should get some credit for that. And there was ice cream. <laughs> um, but I wrecked it, be because, why? Because I'm at my best let's go get ice cream, and I'm at my worst with the people that I love the most. And, and most of us at an intuitive level, we get this is why we're scared of intimacy, because we know that who we actually are will come out with no filter. And what will happen? What will happen? But this is how we become people of love. We mess up. We repent. People call us out. We recognize that's not who I want to be. We come back to the center, to the plumb line of love. This is also why the two most important, I would argue at least, components to a healthy Jesus community, or for that matter, any community where transformation is the end goal, are vulnerability and accountability. The word community itself is a cognate with the word communication. Community happens when we communicate with each other at a bare soul level, and we all know this is risky. M. Scott Peck, in his book on community, writes, there can be no vulnerability without risk, but there can be no community without vulnerability. And vulnerability is dangerous, one, because you might get hurt. You might open up, and you might experience rejection or criticism or the perennial person who's there to fix you every time you have an issue. Or, or my wife said this to me a few days ago. She's like, the Spirit had put something in her heart, and she was really moved. It was beautiful. Conviction from the Holy Spirit. And she said, but I really don't want to tell the girls in our community. And I said, why not? She said, do you not feel safe? And he said, oh, I feel totally safe. I just don't want them to hold me accountable if I change my mind. <laughs> and I love that. Like, like, don't judge her. You know that you're the same. Like, we all want our autonomy. We're like, so I feel like I think that maybe the Spirit put all this in my heart, but let me just keep it to myself so I can not do it if I don't want to. Right? And so this is, it's risky because we, we could get hurt, or, or, or better yet, we could have somebody hold us to the way of Jesus. David Brooks in his manifesto defines community as, quote, love-drenched accountability. We need both to mature into people of love. If all you have is vulnerability, like you're just totally safe place to share who you actually are, lay it all on the table, and there's compassion and empathy and solidarity, but there's no accountability, 
there's no community there, a friend there to call you to a higher standard, to call you to the way of Jesus, then there's no change. And on the flip side, if all you have is a, you have accountability, but no vulnerability, it's like, oh, you watch an R-rated movie, drop down and give me 50, brother, or whatever. <laughs> but there's no, there's no, that's a thing, by the way. Um, but there's no vulnerability. We're selective in what we share. We don't actually go to the deep wound that is in all of us. Same thing, we don't change. We need both vulnerability and accountability. This is why the center point for Jesus' community is not the stage, not the pulpit, it's not a building, it's a table. It's the plate of bread, it's the cup of wine. And the table is synonymous with what the New Testament writers call the confession of sin, which honestly I think is a massive thing we've lost, in particular in the Anabaptist and the Protestant tradition of the last few hundred years. Because when we come to the table, the idea is that as we do that, we confess our sin from the week or the day before. Here's where I messed up. Here's where I fall short. Here's where my wound just wrecked everything in that relationship or that moment. Here's where I was way less than Jesus. We confess, and with that, there is an accountability with that vulnerability where we re-up to follow Jesus. Scholars argue that the Lord's table is a covenantal meal, meaning every time you eat the bread and drink the cup, it's a way that you recommit to the covenant of God, meaning you recommit to follow Jesus. You sit down on Tuesday night, you think you're just eating like soup and bread. No, you're recommitting to follow Jesus. You're recommitting to the covenant of God. This is why many argue that the most effective, and this is hard to measure, so I have no idea if it's true, but many argue, and it could well be true, that the most effective form of both community and transformation in the U.S. is neither the church nor the therapist. It's Alcoholics Anonymous, which is easy to forget. Started as a discipleship program in Ohio because the local church was great, and Sunday wasn't, they had no problem with Sunday, but Sunday just wasn't cutting it because there wasn't enough vulnerability, and like, there was other great things, but there wasn't this, there wasn't community, there wasn't vulnerability and accountability, and it has since spread beyond the walls of the church and all of that, but at the heart of AA is still the confession of sin. I was chatting, I don't want to mention his name because it was said in confidence, and I don't know what he would think of this um, or if he would get in trouble for it, but I was chatting to an older, well-known pastor that's really one of my heroes, generation ahead of me that is like, oh, Jesus, let me grow up to be like that. Really look up and respect this teacher. And he made a passing comment. He said, you know, it's so strange. We were chatting about AA. And he said, it's so strange that when people are at church and they come down the aisle to receive the bread and the cup and they say sorry to God in their mind for their sin, and that's how they practice the confession of sin, that's not a bad thing. But it's interesting that has way less power for breakthrough, freedom, healing, salvation, then when people show up at a dingy church basement, 7 a.m., sit down with bad coffee and say, hi, my name's whatever, I'm an alcoholic, and I got drunk Tuesday night. Because the latter is actually closer to the New Testament practice of the confession of sin than often how we do churches or how we do the Lord's Supper is. That's not to criticize the church at all. That's just to say there's something here I think that we have lost. This is why so many people come to church every single week and are still lonely. 
That's why there are people who are in a Bridgetown community or some version of community are there every single week but are still lonely. Why some people have good Christian friends but are still lonely. It's because they share the goodness of them, what's right about them, which is beautiful, as you should, but they never share the wrongness of them. Our greatest intimacy comes from our deepest vulnerability, but that is scary. This coming week, I'm getting together with a few of the guys in my community. We do this every year where um, a couple of us do, after we you know, kind of connect with our spouses, we come and we do our budgets together. So we know what each other makes, and um, we know how we spend our money, what our mortgage is, and all that kind of stuff. And then any purchase over $1,000, we have to get group approval for, right? So, and it's, it's all voluntary. It's not like a cultish thing. Like, we opt in. And it's just because we believe that money is central to spiritual formation and to relationships. So anyway, all that to say, it's great. I, I feel really safe with these guys. But there's a new guy who's about to join us. And this will be his first year, right? And he's about, I'm about to see what he makes, and he's about to see everything about my financial life. And people have all sorts of opinions about pastors and money, and he's about to see all of that, and he's about to see what I spend my money on and how much money I spend on coffee and, like, <laughs> all of this stuff. And, and I'm thinking, I trust this man. He's, he's a man of compassion and love. But, man, I, there's a fear, and I'm scared. What, will he judge me? Will he, um, will, will he feel weird about me? Will he, will he get mad at me about something? Purchase over $1,000. We've been a one-car family for years, but I'm just getting so tired of bus number 20 on Burnside. It's just, I feel like I spend half of my week waiting in the rain for the number 20 on Burnside. And I know that's privilege, but I, I just want a second car. And um, so I'm, think, I'm thinking about buying a car or whatever for myself. And I'm, but what will he say? Will, will he doom me to bus 20 forever? <laughs> Or I have no idea. And there's a, par- there's a part of me that is scared. But I know that it is in that tender place of vulnerability and accountability. That's where the growth edge is. Like, I know that's, that's where Jesus does some of his best work. Think of all the one another commands in the New Testament, which are all about how to live in community. For example, here's the one sampling. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Live in harmony with one another. Love one another. Stop passing judgment on one another. Accept one another. Instruct one another. Greet one another with holy kiss. That, by the way, is from one passage in Romans. There are 59 such commands in the New Testament. Just go Google it or word study it. And here's what you find. The New Testament writers assume two very simple things about you that I don't think can be assumed of modern American Christians. They assume, one, that you're in community. Not just like at church on Sunday. You're in community where you know and you are known, like very well. And two, they assume that it's really messy. Like all of them assume that there are people that you have to accept because you don't want to. And they're people you need to honor because, frankly, you're just full of contempt for them. And they're people you need to instruct because they don't have a clue. And they're people you need to bear with. And they're people you need to confess to. And they're people you need to love. Like that, you're, They assume you're in a community, and it's messy. But it is the place where you are learning to love. And that is really, I'm about done. That's really all I want to say tonight. This is not a new message for our church at all, though I know some of you are new to our community. But really, my message is just this. As scary as community is, for all sorts of reasons, individualism, idealism, and intimidation are just three out of many, it is Jesus' school of love. 
As John Vanier, the founder of LaArch, said, virtue is a community project. I love that. Spiritual formation happens nowhere but in community. On vacation, I finally got around um, to reading The Boys in the Boat. Anybody read that? Which is that beautiful biography. One of you. Well, more than bowlers, all right? Um, Okay, a few of you. Beautiful biography. Don't need to read it. But it's about uh, one of the best sports teams of all time. I don't know why I read it. But um, about this rowing team from UW in Seattle that went to the Berlin Olympics in 1936. And it's famous. I'm sure it'll become a movie at some point. But um, I don't really care about sports at all, but it's really about the human spirit and poverty and the war. It was really interesting. But what struck out to me was just one line in the epilogue, as it's just like the summary of the book. And it said that they rowed over two or three years when they were together as a crew, 4,344 miles. Like, that's far enough to row from Seattle to Japan for just 28 miles of racing in which they were undefeated one of the best sports teams of all time, 4,344 miles for 28. And this doesn't normally happen to me, but as I was reading that, I just like was arrested by the Spirit. I just felt in my mind's eye the Spirit speak to me and say, John Mark, your family, your wife and your children, and your community are your training ground for love. What those 4,000-plus miles of practice were to the boys in the boat at the Berlin Olympics, the people you do life with are to love. And I was reading that story. The, those 4,000 miles, they got almost everything wrong. And they would, they would capsize the boat, and they would fall over, and they would make mistakes, and they would have bad form, and they would have the coach yell at them, and they would do it wrong, and there was bad weather, and everything was a mess in practice. But it was for them to actually row in love. And I don't mean that our love is performance at all. I just mean that there is something to this where our, our closest relationships, which are our hardest relationships, are the training ground for love. Willard used to say that if at some point you make a decision in your heart to become a person of love and you decide to apprentice after Jesus and grow and mature into a person of love, start with somebody you don't know very well. (laughs) Because it's way easier to love people that you don't know very well. So seriously, he was not joking. He would say, start with like a distant colleague at work that's like down the hall and you see a couple times a week or something and just decide to love them. Like bring them flowers, write them a nice email, take them out to lunch. Don't start with your roommate. Just don't start there. Don't start with your mom. Don't start with your daughter. Don't start with your spouse. Like start with somebody a ways away because it's so much easier to love people we don't know very well and who don't know us very well. And that's not a bad thing at all. That's actually, I love the realism of that. Our closest relationships are where we get it wrong, where we practice, where we mess up, where we get called out, where we need coaching, where we need help, where we need healing. But they are the training ground, the school of Jesus to become people of love. How many of you want to become people of love? And Jesus calls all who are ready and willing to follow him into his school of love. I think the place that we begin is with a rebellion against the rebellion, right? Meaning if the hyper-individualism of the 1960s today was a rebellion against the kind of World War II generation and the power dynamics of that and the communitarian nature of that, I think for our generation, we begin with a rebellion against the rebellion, like the, the right kind of Jesus rebellion against the radical individualism of our day. 
For those of you who are up for a little bit of Jesus-y rebellion, our practice for the coming week is all on practicingtheway.org slash community. Week one is basically just a, a pre-week for those of you that are not yet in a community, whether it's a Bridgetown community or some other iteration that is a part of your life. It's basically just to start or join one. That might be as simple as, hey, for the next month or two, just Grab two, three, five people, and hey, let's share a meal together once a week, and let's just begin to practice the confession of sin or read scripture or whatever it is. Start small. But today is simply a call to follow Jesus in community. For some of you, you're not doing that at all. You have Christian friends, and you're here, which is wonderful, but you're not actually living in community. So it's a very simple call. Just if you're up for it, if you're ready, you don't have to, no sales pitch. But if you want to, the call is to start. For many more of you, you are living in community, and the call is, is maybe just to stay at it when it's hard, or maybe it's to love that person that right now you just want to gossip about and avoid, or maybe it's to have the hard conversation that you want to ignore, or maybe it's to do the hard work of forgiveness, of the release or maybe it's just to take the next step forward in vulnerability and accountability. Maybe it's just to begin the practice on a regular basis of the confession of sin. Maybe you just take two or three people from your community and once a week or once a month or once a day or whatever it is, you get together and, uh, and you confess sin. This same, I won't name him, but this same pastor that I so look up to every single, he's in his late 60s, every single morning at 6.30 a.m., he has a standing call with his best friend from college where he, they confess sin to each other for five minutes each morning and then pray before they start the day. I thought, man, I don't think I'd do that once a year, much less. <laughs> like, not, my first thought was, you have friends from college? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> wow. Uh, so my point is, listen, we are across the spectrum. Just start where you're at. If where you're at is, I should like have a meal with somebody, start there. If it's I need to forgive, start there. If it's I'm ready to practice the confession of sin, just start there. Most of you know some of my story with community. I don't want to rehash it, but um, this, this, none of this comes naturally for me. I am very introverted, and I'm in a social job, and I spent years just as like, not living in community at all, and, and not even aware that was a problem. I know hundreds of followers of Jesus. I have lots of friends, but I was not living in community. And very long story, I was just arrested by the Spirit of God about 10 years ago and came to the realization, oh my gosh, I'm a pastor at a church, and I'm not actually living in community, at least not by the New Testament definition. So long story short, my friend Matt and Anna, you know, moved across the street from us, and we began just to, very simple, like, eat dinner together on a regular basis. And then we began to commute together, and then we began to share our finances, and then we began to raise our children together, and then other people joined the community. And for about a year, it was the most idealistic and incredible thing I've ever been a part of. The 10 years since then have been mostly a pain. But, um, <laughs> but it has still been. So all the idealism is gone from my mind. I've been at it long enough. But man, it has still been one of the most transformative practices I've ever been a part of. And as introverted as I am, and as much as there's a part of me that would happy to live as a monk, um, and there, there's no going back for me. I will never not live this way by the grace of God. As hard as it is, and I'm well aware of how hard it is, and as imperfect and messy as it is, and I'm well aware of all of that, there's something here for all of us. 
Jesus would end his teachings just by saying, we read this in the parables last week, let him or her, let whoever has ears to hear, hear. And what he meant is, I get that as a parent. There are moments when I say something like, oh, I so want my child to know this. It would change their life forever and for the better. And they hear me, like the words go into their mind. They don't hear me because their heart is not yet ready to receive the incredible wisdom of their father. (laughs) Bad analogy. It all breaks down. My point is, man, let's not be like that. The call of Jesus with no guilt trip, no pressure, is to community. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Let's stand together and pray. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Practicing the Way. We are a crowdfunded nonprofit that exists because of the generosity of listeners like you. To support our work, join The Circle, our community of monthly givers. To give or to learn more about running our resources in your church or small group, visit practicingtheway.org.